This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Today's scripture reading comes from two passages from the Gospel of John. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And from John 3, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Well, we are in a series, as I mentioned, called Watch for the Light. And we're talking about the incarnation. And last week we said the incarnation, we find it clearly uh, in John throughout, a couple times here in John chapter 1, and it's very, very explicit in verse 14, which we taught on last week, which says, and the Word, which is God, or in this case, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we said that could also be described as God became man. And that's what the incarnation means. That's what it is, that God became man. And that's what Christmas is about. It's about Jesus' birth. And the way that we are going to walk through the Advent season is by applying this incarnation, this doctrine, this belief, this truth of the incarnation. We're going to, we're going to look through it, uh, look at it through the lens of the entire storyline of the Bible. So a few weeks back, we did a series uh, called Welcome to the Story. And we said that the Bible, although very complex, and this is a little reductionistic, uh, can be viewed through four chapters of creation, rebellion or fall, redemption, that God is redeeming and restoring things, and then ultimately consummation, when all things will be made whole again. And that is the overarching storyline of the Bible. And we called those four chapters. Well, we're revisiting those chapters, but this time looking at them explicitly through the lens of the incarnation. Last week we saw that, among other things, the fact that God became man and it wasn't a problem shows the goodness of creation. The goodness of being human. That when I look at you, I see you. I don't just see a body. I see a human being made in God's image. And God cares about that. And Jesus took on flesh. Jesus became man. God became a man. We talked about the fact that human beings are made to image God. And we have this amazing capacity for glory. But our glory is derivative. It doesn't come from within. It actually is more like the moon. The moon is most the moon when it's most fully reflecting the glory of the sun. And we as human beings are most fully human when we're reflecting the glory of God as a human being. But we understand this week that the fact that Jesus, that God did have to become man, tells us there's something wrong. It tells us that something went wrong. That there was a rebellion 
against this good and original creation. And the Bible calls this rebellion oftentimes throughout darkness. It uses this imagery of light and darkness. You know, darkness, if you were to reflect on it for a while, we could come up with lots of things that it does. We could describe it in different ways. Uh, As I was thinking about it this week, one of the things that came to my mind over and over was this one time when I was on a field trip in uh, elementary school and I, we went to Marengo Cave, which is in southern Indiana. And the tour guide was taking us through and showing us all the different aspects of the cave. And once we got to the deepest, darkest part of the cave, she started talking about light and darkness. Uh, she started talking about uh, giving us a little biology lesson on how a light works. And um, she turns off the lights during this presentation. So we're in the deepest, darkest part of the cave and she turns off the lights and she tells everyone to stay silent. So here we are at first, you're kind of smiling, you're kind of amazed at the light. But you know, I've never experienced this much darkness before. And if you've ever been in a cave, you understand that it's so dark that your, your mind's telling you, just wait, you'll get accustomed to it. Your, your eyes will adjust, but in fact, it never happens. And then after what seemed like five minutes, I don't know how long it was, you know, we're, she's, she, everybody's quiet and, you know, if anyone's talking, she's shushing them. And it was to magnify the effect of after a while, the darkness almost feels like oppression. It almost feels like weight on you. And then after three minutes goes by with no talking and, and no light, you start to get a little disoriented. You start to wonder which way is which. And I remember uh, after, I don't know, a few minutes, um, I started to feel afraid. Now, there was no reason to feel afraid. I mean, I knew that everything was under control, but I started to think things like, what if the light never comes on? What if we get trapped down here? So disoriented. And then I remember, I can see it in my mind now, this dis- in the distance, a flashlight turns on. And you see, she had walked all the way to, uh, down to the light switch to to a different light switch and, and turned it on and light illuminated the cavern again and I could see. But I'll, I'll never forget the feeling of disorient, being that disoriented in that much darkness, almost feeling it. And the way the Bible talks about darkness, it also talks about this disorientation to reality, this, this confusion, this belief eventually that this darkness is the reality when in fact it is less than reality. There's more reality than darkness, and the Bible describes that as light. Now, most of us uh, desire to be enlightened in life, don't we? I mean, when we feel disoriented, when we feel confused, there is this path, there's this seeking for light or for enlightenment that we use that. But normally, when people use that word, they mean that the light is found somewhere from within, that to be enlightened, I need certain information that, and almost mystical, where I can be illuminated from within. But in fact, what we'll see today is that the light that illuminates is not within. The light that brings orientation is not within. It's actually from without. And so in the first chapter of John, John tells us of this great light. He calls it the true light. And so this morning, I want to make three observations about the true light. 
And the first thing I want to do first things first, there is the dawning of the true light that John introduces to us in John chapter 1. In verse 9, he says it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now, earlier in John chapter 1, he says that this light or this word actually created everything, which is why it's actually kind of strange. We know that something's seriously wrong when the one who created everything, the word or the light, when he comes into the world, the world doesn't know him. Something went terribly wrong. At some point, darkness enters the scene. If you remember in creation, there was darkness, but the first thing that God said was, let there be light. But somewhere, something happened. And if you're familiar with the Bible, when you read John chapter 1 in these first verses, you understand that he's clearly referring to Genesis chapter 1, the creation. So at some point, we call it the fall Darkness entered the world through the disobedience of God's image bearers, through the first man and woman, through Adam. And this idea of true light, in the Gospel of John, true just means ultimate or even genuine, right? Ultimate in the sense that Jesus, when talking about who he is in the Gospel of John, says that he's also the true manna, the true bread from heaven. Right? So John says he's the true light, and Jesus says he's the true manna from heaven. It doesn't mean that the, the manna and the Israelites, that it wasn't true, it wasn't real from God, but this is something different. This is true in the sense of ultimate, in the sense of different. Now, as we move forward this morning, we talk about the dawning of the true light. I don't want our minds to stop or get stuck at the imagery of light, because I think that that could be too abstract, Right? You talk about light and darkness, that could stay abstract. But what I want you to know is that the rest of the gospel from John chapter 2 on is to show us that this light is actually a person. This light is Jesus. And so we see this light in the God-man. It's very creaturely and yet divine. It's very magnificent and yet in a sense it should be ordinary. This light can be seen. John says that when we see the God-man, we see his glory. And so I don't want our minds to only stay abstract. I want us to think about the fact that the Bible is saying that the light is a person. The light is Jesus. Now, if the light is Jesus and the light is coming into the world, but the world doesn't know him, it means that there is now a competing kingdom to the kingdom of light. The Bible speaks of this cosmic battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. When the apostle Paul meets Jesus uh, as he's going to persecute more Christians with the permission of the religious leaders, uh, some of you may not know the story. Uh, Paul is zealously persecuting the church and Jesus actually meets him and there's a light that shines and it knocks him off his horse. And after they have a conversation, he This is what Jesus says to Paul. He says, I am sending you to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And here's the the two kingdoms. From the power of Satan to God, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among the, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so the dawning of the true light is a battle. The dawning of the true light is the beginning, the climax, as it were, of, the, of this cosmic battle between darkness and light. Now, I want to point out one thing here in verse 9. It says, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. What does it mean that the true light enlightens everyone? Does, does it therefore mean that everyone knows him? That they're enlightened in that sense? Well, it can't mean that because right after this, he says that some people didn't receive him. Some people didn't know him. This enlightenment is not within. This enlightenment is from without. This is the light switch being flipped on. And when it's flipped on, you have a couple options. You can hide and run to the darkness or you can stay in the light. You see, that's the very first thing when the light dawns that happens. There's a choice. There's a personal crisis. You see, when Jesus came, it changed world history. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or not. We understand by observation and culture and history, but also the Bible and its interpretation of history. We understand that when the light dawned, it changed everything. We can't go back. The true light has enlightened everyone. So now the question is, how will we respond? So there's two ways that this text tells us that we can respond. We can either reject the true light or we can receive the true light. But the light has dawned. At Christmas, when Jesus came, the one we sang about, the child, the light has dawned. And I love that line. I've never seen it before until this morning. And what child is this? You, the picture is of this little baby who's silent. The baby's not even speaking, but the baby, Jesus, demands praise and worship, even in its silence. It's quite extraordinary. The light has dawned in Jesus. So the first thing we see, though, is that uh, there can be a rejecting of the true light. So let's look at this. It clearly divides light and darkness, even the imagery. As soon as light turns on, uh, you can know where is light and you know where is dark. I remember on our honeymoon in St. Lucia, we were, um, uh, we were uh, uh, snorkeling. And as we were snorkeling along this reef, um, there was a, a drop-off. Uh, I don't even know how far away from the shore we were, but there was this drop-off and you could see things and then all of a sudden you couldn't see anything. <laughs> and it was pitch black and I was terrified of the black, right? So I'm, I'm newly married and uh, trying to not act scared, but I could barely pay attention to what I was looking at because I saw this depth of darkness. So we understand that even light and darkness divides, okay? We know the difference between light and darkness. And if it's true, what we're saying in what child is this, if, if the, dawn, the light that's dawned in Jesus is so magnificent, then why do some people turn away from it? If it's so glorious, why do people turn away from it? Is, is it? is it not that glorious? You see, the fact that the light dawns and God comes to save in the incarnation, it produces a crisis in us. Uh, we said last week that Jesus is the fullest self-disclosure of God. 
Jesus is the word. He is the fullest revelation. You know, I tried to think of a better illustration than this. This is very lowbrow, okay? So I apologize ahead of time. Um, But nonetheless, here we go. So I was thinking about what happens when light gets turned on and it creates a reaction of either running away from or remaining in this light that comes on. And I was reminded of my senior year of high school. I'm from a small town in southern Indiana, but it's the county seat. And so in my county, we were the biggest high school. There's 247 of us in our graduating class. And at senior week, there would be a party every night. Now, you never knew where the party was going to be because the cops might come. And they often did every year. And um, so you'd find out that day it was very secretive. So I remember the, the, by the way, most of us weren't drinking or partaking in drugs or anything. We just kind of went because it was fun and it was cool. Now, of course, there was a contingency of people who were doing drugs and drinking and things like that. But most of us were just there to have fun and be together. And uh, the first night went by just fine. The second night went by just fine. But there were rumors that the police were on their way. Who knows who started those? But I remember the third night, the third night we were all standing around and someone came up to us and said, hey, the cops are here. And we were like, no, the the cops aren't here. And a couple minutes went by and all of a sudden nobody could reject the fact that the cops were there because lights just came on. And there's a cop car here and a cop car here and a cop car here and police are just like a wall of police walking towards us like this. And you can't see anything. But you did know Uh, who reacted to the light by rejecting it because they took off sprinting, right? So the lights come on and everyone's looking at the lights and then you see these people taking off, right? Why did they take off? Why did they run? Well, verse 20 in chapter three, they ran because they didn't want to come to the light lest their works should be exposed. They knew that they were in the wrong. They knew that they needed to run, lest they be exposed. But then the question is this. Is it simply what they were doing was wrong, or was it something deeper that they were afraid of? You see, in in John chapter 3, we see that it's not just that people do bad things. But in fact, they loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, it's, it's, it was, it's deeper than simply doing bad things. What the light actually exposes is what you love. The light actually exposes your dreams. The light actually exposes what you think will make you worthy of love and respect, and esteem. That's what the light does. And of course, uh, there's sin in the world. That's why Jesus came. But beneath exposure, this, this realization that we love the wrong things, it creates in us shame and conviction. And that's really why people run. That's really why we run. Now, some of us think, well, I'm not evil. Especially those of us who are Christians, we think, well, I'm not evil. Well, it just depends on who you let define the word evil. I mean, the Bible says that you actually were evil. 
This week in Ephesians 5, I think it was 5, I was reading where Paul says, I'd never noticed this before. He doesn't just say that we walked in darkness and now we should walk in light. He says that we were darkness. That's what the Apostle Paul says. You were darkness, but now you are light. Jesus calls us the light of the world. This week, Ben and I were talking about this very thing and about how the incarnation and light, um, the fact that Jesus is incarnate and that when we experience shame, he's with us. And we, he, she showed me this diagram that he learned in, in the counseling program at RTS that he's in. And he drew it on the board. And, and I want you to imagine this with me in your mind. It's just very simple. There's two horizontal lines, one here and one here. And then there's this gap in between these lines, all right? Now, this bottom line is reality, right? It's, it's, it's what you just did or what you just thought, how you just reacted, the, the reality. And then there's this ideal up here, this, this bar that's ideal, how you wanted to act, how you wish you would have acted, how you wish you would be. And there's this gap. Now, you see, when we experience something that shines light on the gap, we realize there's a gap, and we don't even always consciously do this, but we have to respond because that gap is shame. When we see the gap between how we are and how we want to be, we experience shame. And Ben was telling me there are a couple different responses to this at least. One, some of us are achievers. Right? Some of us want to cover up the gap by taking this bottom line and getting it closer to the top line. Right? I will be okay if I can do better, if I can perform better, if I can, if I can achieve, then the shame might go away. But he said some other people are slackers. And the way they cover up the gap is by bringing this ideal down closer to reality. And those are the people that do shameful things. Like it's so obvious. Everyone's like, you should be ashamed of yourself. But they act like it's no big deal. They act like it's no big deal. They're just like, eh, you know, well, you're just too uptight. You're just too serious. But they feel the shame. Both, in both instances, instead of coming to the light, what these people are doing, these people are us, by the way, is we're simply staying out of the light and covering up the shame, covering up the darkness that we're all experiencing and we all know about. Either way, the light is simply being avoided. CBR, Community Bible Reading, we just read Hebrews. And chapter four, verse 13, reminded me of how futile trying to avoid the light actually is, right? Because the word exposed here, the light exposes you, and then you have shame and conviction, Hebrews 4 says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, instead of coming to the light, many of us just focus our efforts on adjusting our eyesight to the darkness. That's actually what we do. We just get really good at seeing in the dark. Instead of coming to the light and letting it flood in and expose us as it is real. I was thinking this week, uh, I took a lot of science classes in my undergrad, 
And I'm not sure why this lesson, this lecture, this part of this lecture had such an impact on me, but I remember where I was sitting, what the professor was wearing, and what slide was on the PowerPoint. And we were talking about the physiology of the human eye. So um, I'm not going to act like I remember all of it, but I remember we were talking about the anatomy of the eye and how it works and the way the people works and light and rods and cones and the optic nerve and all of these things. But this is what I remember. I remember there's a protein in our eye called rhodopsin. And what happens is rhodopsin is always being broken down, as far as I remember it, and built up in order to help us adjust to seeing in the light. And it's working in this whole system of the eye. It's quite extraordinary. But what happens to rhodopsin as soon as the light hits it is the protein gets broken down. And then when it's, when it's dissipated, um, we are as uh, adjusted to the light as we'll be able to be. But as soon as we go into darkness, the body immediately starts building it back up. And after about 30 minutes, that's when we reach our max capacity of being able to see in the dark. You see, there is something in us like rhodopsin in our heart. We may come to the light and we're, we're, we're exposed and we may experience freedom, but then all of a sudden we start creeping back into the darkness and we don't even know it, but this thing in us is being built up and it's increasing and we're starting to get used to the darkness and we're starting to think that, well, maybe the darkness is better and we start justifying the darkness. But in fact, what we need to do when the light shines in is look at the light, come to the light, Submit to the light instead of simply living our lives trying to get used to the darkness, trying to adjust our eyesight, trying to adjust everything to the darkness. Emily Dickinson in her poem, We Grow Accustomed to the Dark is what it's called, has this line. She says, we grow accustomed to the dark when the light is put away. Where in your life right now are you just putting away the light? You're, just, you're putting on the sunglasses, right? You just put them on. And, you, and eventually you just forget that they're on. But then when it gets too, too dark, even with the sunglasses, you sort of turn and you do everything you can. You set up your life in such a way to put away the light. You see, the season of Christmas is a time of reflection to where we turn our whole selves back to the light. That's really the Christian life is to turn your whole self and your heart and your longings and desires back to the light because there is this thing in our hearts like rhodopsin (laughs) that just keeps building up trying to make us used to the light. But in fact, the antidote is to stare at the light, to come into the light, to behold the light. And so we reject the light because we love the wrong things. But it doesn't have to end there. There's another response that throughout the gospel of John we're being wooed to and beckoned towards and that is to receive the true light. And the word receive is important. It's used multiple times in John, even in chapter one. We saw it last week. If you look in verse uh, 16 with me, actually it's not, it's not in here. Unless you have a Bible, you don't see it. So I'll just read it to you. John chapter one, verse 16. 
It says, and from his fullness, talking about Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. And we talked about that last week, that the imagery of God and humans is that human beings are made to receive. We're made to be full, but we don't fill up from inside. We fill up from outside. And so we're made to receive. We're designed to receive. And so to receive the true light is no small thing. You'll notice that the lover of darkness shuns light out of fear of exposure and shame. But in chapter three, the one who loves the light, the one who comes to the light, doesn't prance forward in arrogance, right? In self-righteousness. And first, just let me pause here. If you're not a Christian, or if you have been away from the church or the faith for a long time, I first want, not that this makes it better, but I want to acknowledge the fact that there are some Christians that you've experienced that are self-righteous. And by seeing the light, in fact, it's made them harsh and it's made them hard because they're not receiving the light. They're actually using the light to cover up their own darkness. They're actually manipulating the truth. They actually misunderstand the coming of the light to be that in order to come into the light, I have to clean myself up in order to come to the light first, when in fact the Bible teaches the exact opposite, that to receive life and to receive the light, we come in dirty so that the light can clean us, so that the light can expose us. But you can understand that if a person believes that they have to earn, it means they hide. And as soon as they're exposed, they lash out. And they say hurtful things. And if, if that's been your experience, I just want to say I'm sorry. And if you've done that to people, I have. Right? It's not just them, it's me. Okay, I've done this to people. I've used the truth to hurt people and to stifle people and to belittle people. Maybe not to their face, right? Because that takes too much courage. But behind their back, right? Watching the news, those people. But God sees my heart. And so I would say to those people who have been on the receiving end of a self-righteous person and those people who are self-righteous, the answer is the same. And that is to look at the true light to let the true light shine so that you can see Jesus for who Jesus is. And when you repent, you come in to the light. You see, those who receive the light understand that it wasn't because they were smarter. It wasn't because the country they were born in. It wasn't because of their personality type. Look with me in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus as the true light, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then in verse 21 in your uh, sermon notes here, it says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Eugene Peterson, who has a uh, paraphrase of the entire Bible, it's very good in many, many ways. In this verse, he 
says something like, so that it may be clearly seen the God work in their life. See, those who come to receive come with no money to buy, as we sang earlier. They come empty-handed because that's the only way we can receive. What they know is this. They know that they come to the light because Jesus is in the light. That's why they come to the light. They're attracted to the light because they're attracted to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, we see Jesus as more beautiful than the fear of being exposed. You see, that's where change in the Christian life comes. That's where transformation happens, is when we come into the light, and we'll never come into the light until we see Jesus as more beautiful than we are afraid of being exposed. And it's a mystery how that happens. You can't talk yourself into that. But it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God as we behold him, as we're around other Christians who display him to us, as we watch people love one another, as we read the scriptures for themselves. I can't remember now what philosopher it was, but an atheist philosopher one time read the gospels and as he was reading the gospels, he says, I finally discovered a book that understands me. You see, it's as we approach the word, the written word, and we let that light illumine, illuminate our stories. Somewhere in there, it's, we start to see Jesus as beautiful and more beautiful and more attractive than the power of the fear we have of being exposed. In verse four, John says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. See, that's what we want is life. We want to experience life to the full because we were made for that. And Jesus comes as the true light in darkness to bring us life. And I want to say this, this is why we do community Bible reading. Many of us were exposed to the Bible as mainly a rule book or mainly uh, a, a, a manual of doctrine, okay? And of course it has rules and it has doctrine. But the reason we engage CBR together as a church is because the word, God's word is a lamp to our feet. You see, darkness constricts your vision, but light expands your vision of reality. It allows you to see things more clearly. And in Christ, we're ushered from death to life, which is clear imagery, but also from light to darkness. And so when we come to God in his word, every time it shines a light on our story and we can choose to either embrace the light or reject the light. We can choose to receive understanding or to stay in darkness. We can choose to address confusion or to continue to be our own Lord, right? In the word, we find the courage to face the fear that comes from being disoriented, from being exposed, from being in the darkness. This connection between life and light, I don't even remember where I read it somewhere this week that the Spanish phrase to give birth, like to a child, literally means to give to the light, now, those of you who speak Spanish, come tell me if that's true. But that imagery of to give to the light reminds me of Psalm 56, verse 13. The psalmist says this, 
For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. See, in Jesus, the beautiful thing is that the light doesn't only expose, but it also transposes. In the gospel, the light of life doesn't simply expose you, but it also transposes you. And to transpose is to, to cause two or more things to change places with each other. That's what it means for, to be a transposition, is when things change places. And so you see, in the gospel, Jesus exposes your darkness. And when you open yourself up to that darkness, he actually, on the cross, took it on and traded places. That's why he can say, now you are the light of the world. That's why Paul can say, you once were darkness and now you are light. And so I would invite all of us, whether you've been a Christian for years and you're, lit, you're trying to get used to the darkness in the area of your life that you're struggling with, you think it's better to keep it hidden, you're dying slowly. And for those of you who have never come to the light, I would say the beauty of the light is it doesn't just expose you, right? Our worst fear would be like to go to a counselor and for you to tell their whole story and to be exposed and for them to say, gosh, I'm not sure if I can help you. You're pretty bad. That's not gonna happen. It's not like that. It doesn't merely expose. It also transposes your offered life in Jesus. You're offered true life. So this Christmas season, I would ask you, turn to the light. Watch for the light. Investigate the light. Let's pray. Father, we come to you um, knowing that <clears throat> The mystery of the good news in Jesus is praiseworthy. We saw him and he was beautiful to us and we wanted him and so we came to be exposed in the light. And I pray for all of us that as we all encounter areas of darkness in our light, in our life that we would not turn towards darkness to hide and to cover up shame, but that we would come to the light to be exposed and to see how Jesus's sacrifice on our behalf paid for that too. And even more magnificently, the power in the light is that we don't have to keep doing that. But the light transforms as well. So. I pray as we respond and reflect and sing to you that you would change us now in Jesus' name and for his glory.